When Chandler O'Leary goes on a road trip, she always brings along a map and her sketch pad. When I've been drawing, I really remember those trips in a way that I don't when I'm letting the camera do the seeing for me. We'll explore the scenic possibilities you can find road tripping up the West Coast across California to the Pacific Northwest. In many parts of the U.S., you can find local comfort foods you just won't find anywhere else. One of the things that wonderfully unifies us is, is our pride when it comes to state dishes and our joy of eating them. Author Matthew Gavin Frank explores some one-of-a-kind southern delicacies. The name of hummingbird cake, um, it's called that because apparently there's so much sugar in it that if you eat an entire piece, your heart starts fluttering like the wings of a hummingbird. And listeners recall the unforgettable kindness people showed them in their travels. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for coming along. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. The uncertainties of the global pandemic sure can do a number on our travel plans. But we're the kind of people who trust that better times are ahead, whenever that may be. And part of what we have to look forward to are the people and places we'll meet in our future travels. Today, let's remember why we travel in the first place and explore some of our options in the hour ahead for a great American road trip. We'll also indulge in some of the taste treats you can find across the South. What's the best way to take in the sunny coast of California, Oregon's rocky beaches, and Washington's rain coast? Author and illustrator Chandler O'Leary argues it's by car. Chandler illustrated the beauty spanning the road trip up the entire west coast of the USA in her guidebook, The Best Coast, A Road Trip Atlas. Her book takes both the coastal and the internal routes from the bottom of California all the way to the Washington-Canadian border, and she describes it all through detailed and colorful imagery and words. Chandler's here today to take us along arguably the best coast. Chandler, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rick. The best coast. You're going to get a little bit of uh, calls from the East Coast? Yeah, it might be fighting words a little bit. I actually grew up uh, in Massachusetts, so I might be in a little bit of well, trouble there. <laughs> I'm a West Coast guy, too. So we'll call the West Coast the best coast, like your book does. What's unique about a West Coast road trip? I mean, what's the culture that's just kind of rewarding and nostalgic and gratifying and fun about the West Coast? For me, I think it's a mix of natural beauty and Americana. There's still a lot of great old roadside relics that are there, old neon signs, old fun fiberglass statues like muffler men. But also it's watching the scenery change. It's watching the climate change from Southern California all the way up to oh, true, the rain coast. Yeah. yeah, and I love that about it. And I like the way you set up the book because it's kind of a lighthearted guidebook for the two routes up the whole length of the West Coast and up the interior. But you also talk about how with the arrival of the Interstate 5, that was sort of the end of an age. And, uh, you know, you can get there in 24 hours, but why? Well, you know? why would you? Yeah. yeah. The more, you know, slow down and smell the roses part, you got a little bit of um, sort of nostalgic, you know, motor courts and drive-in restaurants yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And what's great, especially in California, is a lot of that stuff is still there and it's well-preserved. I mean, the climate helps, right? Yeah. And so... I don't know that it's really stepping back into time, but there's a little flavor of that. But these were sort of, weren't they kind of gimmicks just to get them themselves oh, on the sure. road? I mean, oh, sure. Oh, sure. yeah, you go to the place with the teepees or you go to the place with the big lumberjack. Yeah, or... anybody to get someone to stop and spend a few bucks, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then we got the advent of neon signs in the 1920s, and you yeah. still get a little bit of that. Yeah, and so much of those are still around. I mean, Los Angeles was the first place that they arrived in the U.S. from France. Ah. So they were really on the vanguard of this new technology, and a lot of 
them are still there. They still survives. Yeah. That's, that's great. great. Now, you're also an artist, and I love it when uh, a writer is also an artist, and you can illustrate the book as you go. Yeah. What was that process like? Because you must have spent a lot of time on the road to write this book. I, I did, yes. I carry sketchbooks everywhere that I go, and so these are kind of my preliminary drawings that I work with. But I think it goes hand in hand with this taking the slow road because you can't work as quickly with a pen and pencil as you do with a camera. Oh, that's a good point. So it just forces you to slow down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and Stop, really look. Get out the car, sit on the driftwood, and, yeah. and look at the waves crashing. Yeah. And then, of course, when I look back at previous trips, wherever I've been, when I've been drawing, I really remember those trips mm-hmm. in a way that I don't when I'm letting the camera do the seeing for me. So you've got that poetic dimension to the book, and you've also got a practical dimension. Uh, You know, you give travel tips and packing tips and what you should know about wildlife or park permits and so on. Mm. Let's just, uh, the whole trip, let's say we're going to do the trip, and, uh, you know, in another interview we'll go up the interior, but right now I want to go up the coastal route. Okay. Uh, Just in general, you've got the California coast, the Oregon coast, and the Washington coast. Yes. Set it up. What should I be expecting different? What's the highlights of each of those uh, thirds of the trip? Well, the book goes from south to north, and I do that because the highway system in America is set up that way, from south to north. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it kind of lets you do the fun Southern California sunny bits first, kind of Mm -hmm. like a nice introduction to it. So I think of it as kind of Southern California, Northern California, then Oregon, Washington. And so... You start out in San Diego right away, and you're in the sun, you're with the palm trees, and you get to kind of watch as you head north. You get to watch that landscape. And you get history right off the bat. You've got these uh, wonderful uh, roadside mission bell markers. Exactly. Exactly from the El Camino Real. Yeah, it's wonderful. And there's a kind of a pro tip for this, too. Highway 1 in California is part of this journey, and a lot of people are scared of doing that drive because you're on these cliffs above the ocean. Oh, yeah. If you go from south to north, you're on the inside of those curves. So it's just a little less freaky. That's a good, that's a practical (laughs) tip that comes from experience. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chandler O'Leary, and her book is called The Best Coast, a road trip atlas, talking about two routes up the west coast, along the coast, and through the interior of the states, Washington, Oregon, and California. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Dana's on the line in Thousand Oaks, California. Dana, thanks for calling. Have you, um, you're from California, have you driven up the coastal highway? Yes, quite a few times. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and um, we went up to Big Sur from there many times, so taking the coast route was the way to go. So Big Sur is, I mean, is it worth the, the hype? I mean, it sounds like a highlight of the whole California coast. What's it like? Well, when you when you get to Big Sur, the, it's just gigantic high cliffs looking down on a real rough coastline. You know, visually, it's, I think it's beautiful. Even as a little kid, I appreciated it. I thought it was fantastic. Now, it's really wild out there. Mm. Uh, Chandler, what, what are you going to find when you drive Big Sur? Natural beauty is really the thing that sticks out. Um, also, wildlife. That's The Big Sur coast is the place to see the elephant seals and their breeding grounds in the oh, winter. Yeah. <laughs> it's really spectacular. I like to add extra time for that to just park the car, get out, look out to sea, look for wildlife. It's great. Nice. Hey, Dana, what is your one tip for enjoying the coastal highway in California? Um, I would say you have to give yourself a few days and give yourself time south of Big Sur. So to give yourself from like San Simeon is a really beautiful area. Uh, between San Simeon and Big Sur, you could spend two days just between there. And would you make time for the Hearst Castle? Oh, definitely. It, I would go. I've been I've been on that many times, and um, you, I would at least do at least one tour of the Hearst Castle. All right, Dana. Thanks for your call. Oh, of course. Thank you. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chandler O'Leary. Her book is The Best Coast, a road trip atlas to the West Coast. Chandler, we're heading north, mm-hmm. and um, of course you're going to stop in San Francisco and so on, but if you go farther north from San Francisco along the coast, it sounds like that's a place where you can sort of turn back the clock. Yes, it's kind of a forgotten little world out there because it's so remote. It's it's not on the way to anything. It's quite far from 101, which is the freeway that runs a little bit more inland. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like time has bypassed these little towns that are there. You can go to tiny roadside restaurants. You can go to the beach pretty easily. So you, got, you talked about a place called the Lost Coast. Just yes. And the, the Lost Coast is truly, truly remote. And that's the sort of place where you need to plan it because it is remote. You need to carry provisions with you. You need to make sure you have enough oh, okay. gas in your tank. You're not, you're not going to be able to find a target <laughs> out there. But maybe a, a more comfortable home base might be Mendocino, which you call Mendocino's, the capital of Queen. Yes, it is beautiful. Mendocino is lovely. It's actually a great base camp if you're going to go to yeah. the Lost Coast. You can kind of spend a few days there and maybe take a day trip or two up the Lost Coast and come back. And then you come into the Redwood Empire. What a beautiful area that sounds it's like. It's gorgeous. It is. In um, fact, your, your favorite state park is the Humboldt Redwoods. Yes, it is so stunningly beautiful. And, and it's amazing to think that you're still in the same state. Yeah. as San Diego or, or Joshua Tree, et cetera. Well, I noticed in your book you've got three sections for California and then one section for Oregon and one section for Washington. <laughs> so there's a lot in California. There is, yes. And some of it is just sheer mileage. I mean, we're, this is such a huge distance that we're covering. It's kind of a hippie haven up there in the Redwood Empire, isn't it? Definitely, especially Eureka, Ferndale as well, which is a teeny tiny little town. It's all Victorian places. They used to call them butterfat palaces because they were built from the riches of the dairy empire there. So it's like a mix of these uh, hippie back to nature types, and then also the, and then the these lumbering, carefully the lumbering rest- yes, yes. And so there's kind of this beautiful mix of restored architecture from the lumbering days. So let's head further north. We get across the border. We're coming into the Oregon coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, what characterizes the Oregon coast? What are the highlights? Well, for one thing, you're probably going to need your raincoat by now. Right. <laughs> the shore gets really rocky. There's a lot more sea stacks here. All of a sudden, these these large boulders that are out just offshore. The road gets really windy in places. You're seeing pockets of rainforest here. Dramatic lighthouses? Some of them, yes. A lot of them are not accessible. Some of them are kind of offshore a bit Mm. um, or way out on a peninsula. But yes, you're starting to see more and more lighthouses. There's a lot of great state parks. Every inch of the shoreline is public. So there's a lot of great places to access the beach. And at the far north of the Oregon coast, we've got some Lewis and Clark history. Yes, we've got Astoria there, which is a great Victorian town. It was the first settlement west of the Mississippi, uh, first white settlement. There's the Lewis and Clark National Historic State Park is there. That's where they overwintered when they got to the coast. There's a a fort that's quite, it's rebuilt, but it's... Yes, Fort Clatsop. It's quite exciting. Yeah, and they, they found quite a lot of archaeological sites from when they were there, like they had the salt cellars, or I I don't know if the word is salt cairns, where they used to boil the salt water so they could have salt. And then you cross the Columbia River and you come into my favorite part of the drive, my Mm. home state, Washington State. And uh, this is the rugged ocean coast of Washington State. Yes. Talk about Long Beach. This is a unique part of the whole drive. It is. It is a very, very long, sandy peninsula. And it's kind of the last sandy beaches you're going to see. It's like 28 miles long or something Yeah. If you're into oysters, this is where you want to go, especially on the bay side of it. There's actually a town, Oysterville, there that beautiful historic buildings, great restaurants. You can shuck your own oysters at some of these places. It's great. Mm. A, a hike that 
all of us here in the Seattle area just dream about is out to the ocean. Uh, talk Cape about Flattery. That. Yeah, Cape yeah, Flattery. yeah. So the Cape Flattery is the northwestern tip of mm-hmm. the contiguous lower 48 states. Um, it's on the Macaw Reservation, so mm-hmm. you want to get a tribal lands permit when you get mm-hmm. there. You walk through the woods on a boardwalk trail, and it leads you out to the very tip on the top of a cliff. Mm. And there's a little tiny island out there, Tatouche Island, and then you see these wonderful sea stacks and cliffs. And if you're lucky, you might see puffins down below or sea stars. It is just magical. Is this the Shai Shai hike that you're talking about? Um, that's a different one. That's it? a different one, yeah. Right. The, this is just the simple boardwalk right. in the woods. Um, but you can walk to Shai Shai Beach and camp. Right. Um, and that's a couple miles south of there. And a powerful experience for me is going into the rainforest. And the Olympic National Park is, yes. is like the unique because it's a temperate rainforest. Yes. And you walk up the whole river valley, uh, and it's like a... It's like a cathedral of moss hanging it's from wonderful. this amazing, massive trellis of uh, trees. It's yeah. And then if you're lucky enough to be there, if the sun just comes out for a moment, everything glows this emerald green, and it is just stunning. It's unforgettable. So what a trip. How many days do you need to do this trip and not, not resort to the Interstate 5? I would say at least give yourself a couple of weeks because then you can, can spend a good amount of time in each right. different area Maybe, and then not yeah. feel too rushed. Chandler O'Leary. The book is The Best Coast, a road trip atlas to the West Coast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We'll remember the kindness of strangers along our journeys in just a bit. But first, let's whet our appetites for some good eats from America's southern states. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email. It's radio at ricksteves.com. From running a breakfast joint in Juneau to catering parties in Taos and sautéing snapper in Key West, Matthew Gavin Frank has picked up some attention-getting backstories that go with local food favorites in all 50 states. He explores what we like to eat and why in his book, The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. He joins us now for a look at a few of the dishes you might find in the American South. Matt, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm so predisposed to look at history and museums and architecture and art to get an insight into a culture, but you can do the same thing through the cuisine, and uh, you really show that as you travel around the United States and learn about each state's culture. You probably end up choosing the cuisine, and then that leads you to learn more about that state. Yeah, it's a it's a great lens through which to tumble down the rabbit hole um, because eventually, you know, I'll I'll begin by talking to a chef and then talk to somebody at a historical society and one person leads to another, which leads to another, and you just kind of start gathering all of this wonderful information. I would think this experience gave you a better appreciation of how distinct the cultures are from state to state in our country because if you just drive the interstate across the country, you might not notice all of these uh, actual deep differences. It's true. There's um, a lot of distinct culture um, that varies from state to state. And of course, within each state, there are so many uh, various subcultures that are distinct as well. But one of the things that wonderfully unifies us is, is our pride when it comes to state dishes and our joy of eating them. That's so true, the pride and the joy. Now let's start this tour. Our tour guide is Matthew Gavin Frank. We're going to take an ecstatic tour through America's food, and we're going to look at the South. We're going to start with Florida. What's the iconic dish in Florida, and what does that tell us about that culture? Uh, Well, I I chose key lime pie for Florida. I I actually uh, spent three and a half years working and uh, living in the Florida Keys, and so um, key lime pie was, was pretty ubiquitous there. 
A lot of the food historians um, in South Florida tend to believe that key lime pie was invented by uh, Florida Keys sponge fishermen in the late 1800s. They were bound to their boats for days on end, and they packed canned condensed milk because it was high energy. Uh, They packed a protein source that um, would spoil less rapidly than meat, so that was eggs. And then they foraged the local trees for key limes. And eventually, uh, they mixed all of those things together, set it out in the sun to cook. So the original key lime pies actually spoiled a little. And that's how key lime pie essentially was invented. They're cooked today now, of course, to prevent salmonella. Yeah. So much time has passed, and it's still the, the beloved uh, dish. What marks a, a good key lime pie in your mind? For me, it's it's a graham cracker crust. Um, I'm not yeah. into these newfangled Oreo crusts and things. A good graham cracker crust, the way the the honey and the cinnamon and the graham cracker crust kind of communicate with the acid of the lime and the sweetness of the condensed milk, it just can't be beat. Mm, talk dirty to me. That sounds so good. <laughs> I could go on Whoa. and on, Rick. I think we better, for our own benefit, we better go to Arkansas now. Uh, all right. This is this might be a little less sexy, um, but uh, the dish I chose for Arkansas was um, beaver tail stew. I actually uh, was traveling a lot in um, Arkansas's hill country and uh, was hanging out with um, folks who still do a lot of subsistence living in Arkansas and a lot of trapping. And so um, one of the old um, kind of lost You can't quite call it typical of Arkansas these days, but um, it's kind of like a a lost heritage dish of Arkansas. And because I found myself in these these communities, I found myself eating it, and I found myself uh, becoming just absolutely enamored of it, quite frankly. It's literally a beaver tail? It's literally a beaver tail. There are actually bakeries that make big sort of like hot waffles that they call beaver tails, but those are riffs on the original, real deal, literal beaver tail stew. So you've got recipes at the end of each one of your chapters. Really briefly, what goes into a beaver tail stew? How do you make it? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the more than anything, um, the most important thing about the beaver tail stew is boiling it for long enough um, so, so it's edible. But um, you kind of season a beaver tail on both sides, uh, sear it in a, a hot fat in a stock pot on both sides, and once it's sufficiently browned, Add a bit of stock, chicken stock. You could just add water. Um, and then there's usually like a, a bunch of aromatics in there. Thyme, parsley, bay leaf, tarragon, rosemary, leek, onion, garlic, carrot, celery, and things. Then essentially it's cooked for at least six hours until it's soft and until it kind of pulls. Then bring your bowl. There's like a gaminess to it. If I were to, I guess on the continuum between a mild lamb and a gamey chicken, I guess I would put beaver tail right there in the middle. All right, let's cross the border. Let's head over to Alabama. Uh, What's the iconic dish in Alabama, and what what insight does that give us to the local culture? Oh, goodness. For Alabama, I chose hummingbird cake, which is, uh, I guess the easiest way to describe it would be, uh, it's kind of like a banana, pineapple, pecan cake with essentially uh, enough sugar in there to put an entire colony of carpenter ants into shock. It's a very, very, very sweet cake. I love it. I love it. I'm not saying that negatively. I I love it. And the name of hummingbird cake, it's called that because apparently there's so much sugar in it that if you eat an entire piece, your heart starts fluttering like the wings of a hummingbird. Oh, my goodness. You know, there's a lot of sweetness in the menus of the South, isn't there? A lot of, I'm just looking through the list of states here. A lot of it is dessert. 
Matthew Gavin Frank knows how to liven up our travel with Rick Steves potluck with tales of signature dishes from across the southern U.S. and a few that time has almost forgotten. He covers local treats from all 50 states in his book, The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. Matt's also written memoirs about working in the Italian wine industry and on a medical marijuana farm in California. He's the author of several books of poetry and teaches creative writing at Northern Michigan University. His website is matthewgfrank.com. Sid's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Sid. Rick, I hope you'll allow me to talk about my native state of South Carolina. Please do. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in what's called the low country of South Carolina, and for that reason, rice grown by family members of generations back must have inspired the enormous role that rice plays in the southern diet in the low country of South Carolina. I would want to honor that tradition because of both its connection to my own family, low-lying areas, almost canals, were developed and rice was grown and harvested. And, of course, it was the wild rice, so so nutritious, but it has uh, morphed into a very important staple within uh, Southern culture in general, but in South Carolina, particularly from the Charleston and Lowcountry area. So I want to vote for rice. So is this red rice you're talking about? Yes. Um, a favorite recipe is red rice. It is. It has the ingredient that every southern savory dish must have, and that is a little bit of fat from the pig. And so it is made up of uh, bacon fried, cut up, onions sautéed in that fat with some tomato paste, mm. water, and honestly, white rice usually. But it, it is great picnic fare with fried chicken, vegetables. It tastes like home to me. Well, thank you, Sid. And, and Matthew, when we think of South Carolina, you came up with a rice dish, didn't you, for your, your iconic dish? That's right. I'm, I'm right there with you, Sid. I, uh, I chose Perlou. <laughs> uh, I chose Perlou, which, I mean, depending on, on who you talk to, Folks describe it as the sister to jambalaya, the brother to rice pilaf, the cousin to paella, but very much its own, th- very much its own thing. So the chef I spoke to um, who contributed a recipe for Perlou, uh, a fellow named Forrest Parker at the Old Village Post House in Charleston, uses specifically Charleston gold rice, fluffs it um, after it's cooked specifically with what uh, a utensil that he, he told me is, is known as a Charleston rice spoon. Um, so yeah, long handle. Yep. So rice is incredibly important. I had a lot of different kinds of perlu when I was there. Uh, I had a, a duck perlu made with andouille sausage. I had, you know, a, a chicken and shrimp perlu. Uh, I had an oyster and clam perlu. And uh, usually, you're absolutely right. Um, the pig always featured. A lot of it had like diced country ham in there, onion, garlic, tomato, chili pepper, oregano. Really, really wonderful stuff. Hey, Matthew and Sid, let's move along. We're just about out of time, but we've got Sid on the line from Atlanta, and I wanted to go to Georgia with Matthew. Matthew, you chose peach pie, right, for for your dish in Georgia? How could I not choose something with peaches in Georgia? Yep. Sid, what would you say is the uh, iconic dish for your state of Georgia? Well, you know, uh, the peach figures prominently 
in all areas symbolically and on road signs, uh, the peach state. So we have regional dishes that will, whenever peaches are truly in season, they, they come to the fore, whether it's milkshakes or fried pies, fried peach pies, which is a delicacy. Mm. Only the best of fry cooks can do. But anything with the peach is going to win fans in, in my part of the world. And I would recommend that the peach in all of its many forms, from pickle peaches to uh, peach <laughs> cobbler, all of those are uh, great representations of Georgia. Sid, it sounds like a slam dunk. For Georgia, it's got to be peaches. Thanks for your call. <laughs> okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Matthew Gavin Frank. It's been a sweet tour of the South. Uh, Matthew's book is The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. And Matthew, we're out of time. I just want to finish with one more state. Of course, there's lots more states, but which state would you say that we should be particularly tuned into for its dish and how it relates to the culture? Well, since we spoke so much about sweet stuff, uh, let's go savory. Let's talk about crawfish etouffee in Louisiana such an iconic dish of Louisiana. Um, the bayou crawfish is typically pulled up. A wonderful roux is made, um, and it's cooked to, like, the chocolate stage. And the roux, for folks who don't know, if they're listening to you, I'm guessing they do, but uh, it's a combination of, like, a flour and a fat until the flour toasts in the bottom of a stock pot. It acts as a thickening agent. Then the crawfish are added, along with onions, celery, bell pepper, garlic, Cayenne, of course, a little lemon thyme, and a shellfish stock. Wait a minute, you're getting me turned on again. This is so nice. The subtitle of the chapter is actually the sad autoerotica of the crawfish etoulet. What is? What do you mean by the sad autoerotica? Well, it's a weird. It's a weird essay, Rick. Um, I'm not going to say anything that uh, might get me uh, ba- banned okay. from your radio show in future, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just tell you that um, the word etouffee, which describes the dish, the English translate etouffee as stifled. But the French speakers know a little bit better, and they know there's more kind of uh, action and premeditation in it. And they know that etouffee means smothered or suffocated. So um, quite literally, the crawfish are smothered or suffocated in the sauce that you cook it in. And from this notion of, well, smothering, elements of autoerotic asphyxiation crept into the Louisiana chapter, I'm sorry (laughs) to say. No, don't be sorry. Every country, every state has its own insights. And you've really demonstrated very tastefully that it can be an insight that's gained by understanding the local cuisine. Matthew, Gavin, Frank, thanks so much for being our tour guide as we enjoy, with your help, the Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. Happy eating and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. He's got big ribs and candied yams, sugar-cured Virginia ham, basement full of those berry jams, and that's what I like about South that brings us Mississippi Mud Pie for Dessert in a web extra you can hear at ricksteves.com radio. Let's stoke our appetites for travel with your calls right now. Tell us where you're looking to go when you can next get to travel or share a travel memory. Cullen's calling in from Minneapolis. Hey, Cullen. Hi. I am taking my whole family to Portugal to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. So it'll be my parents, myself, my wife, my sister and her two kids, who are 8 and 10. And I think I'm sort of looking for some tips on a successful multi-generational trip and also 
I want to plant the travel bug with the kids because it's going to be their first time out of the country, but I also don't want to overwhelm them because I'm, I'm very excited. And <laughs> I know sometimes when adults get excited, kids go, whoa. Oh, I've been so, there, yeah. Colin. I know exactly what you mean. And what I've learned from the School of Hard Parenting Knox is uh, you really need to honestly involve the kids in the planning part of the trip. Have some uh, family-coordinated, you know, movie-going and reading and so on and introduce uh, them to what Portugal has to offer and then let them help design the itinerary. There's all sorts of fun things the kids might want to do. If they plan the trip to a certain degree, they feel more invested in it, and I think they are going to make it successful instead of uh, sabotage it. That's great, yeah. What about, are there ideas for sort of travel skills or just, you know, first time in a place where they don't speak the language to start introducing them? I'd love them to, yeah. you know, not, not be relying on their parents for everything. Yeah, well, I just love the, the chance for kids to have the responsibility of taking care of their own money and budgeting and so on and doing the arithmetic with the exchange rates and so on. And I always thought, well, the kids, you know, they have, they have to live on their allowance. Uh, and when mom and dad go on a vacation, they're getting more than their allowance. They're, they're having a splurge. So I bump up the kids' allowance on the condition that they write a journal. The journal is really integral to that. Journaling for kids is is a wonderful souvenir. They'll treasure that souvenir, and it also um, gives them, I think, some sort of uh, direction as far as how to get the most out of the trip. So there's all sorts of creative ways that kids can journal in the trip, and if they do their journaling, they get a little extra allowance money, and then instead of you having to buy them ice cream all day long and everything, they've got money to buy their own ice cream, and they can uh, pick and choose where they want to spend it. That is such a fantastic idea, and now the, the kids, they love to make books already, and yeah. this is just a chance to really embrace that, and it hadn't even occurred to me. So thank you so and, much. And with, with kids 8 and 10, this might seem a little radical, but I'll never forget, my wife and I were in Ireland with our kids, and they are about that age, and they were just pills, and we were getting really tired of it, and we said, all right, you guys, here's $25 for the two of you, now go find dinner on your own. <laughs> it was really fun, and they looked at us like, are you kidding? Are you really? You're just cutting us loose? And it was a little town where there was no danger, you know. And uh, they had to sit down in a restaurant and they had to talk to the waiters. It was a real empowering thing for them. So I'm not sure if eight and ten's quite the right age for that, but that was a wonderful way for the kids to have the responsibility and to realize that, yeah, um, it's a lot of work to put a tour together, especially for a family. And if everybody's not pulling together, it brings everybody down. That's really great. I am excited yeah. to uh, give that a try yeah. with them and have a good group activity. <laughs> and be sure to take a little leadership from a parent tour guide point of view when it comes to the food. It's fun to see things in the market and then order it on the menu that night in the restaurant. Uh, one of my favorite things in Portugal is the uh, barnacles. If people have read my work on, bar- on Portugal, they know I love the barnacles. They're called Persebish. And uh, you can look out at the rocks outside of the town, and, and you can tell the kids, these barnacles, look at they're the most expensive thing on the menu. And you know why that is? Because you got to harvest it in the surf, where the rocks and the waves are coming together, and it's actually dangerous. And these guys, scuba divers, have to go down there and harvest the barnacles, and then they bring them in, and they're quite expensive, but they're really good. The locals love them. And they're just uh, during certain seasons, and the barnacles happen to be in season, and we're going to have it. And then the kids are sort of uh, wonderstruck by these barnacles. They they look like the toes of the Wicked Witch of the West, you know. And uh, uh, you you actually break them off and eat them, and they're they're just as much fun as biting off the the necks of uh, butter clams. You know, it's just a beautiful experience for the kids, and it's part of the culture. 
That sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. In fact, I remember going to a market, and around the market there are cafes that will boil your barnacles for you. So you buy the barnacles in the market where they're more affordable, and then you take them to the cafe, and they will cook them for you and bring them to you on a platter, and it makes it an even better memory. And that's a pretty different experience from uh, going out to the restaurant and ordering something from the menu. (laughs) For sure. And those are the kind of experiential things that kind of open the kids up to the wonder of travel. And uh, again, if the kids own a little bit of that, uh, if it's their agenda, they're going to have a much more positive attitude. So um, best wishes on your trip. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Take care, Colin. Bye. Bye. More of your calls are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves. The world will get through this coronavirus pandemic, and we will be traveling again soon, I hope. For now, let's allow ourselves to be inspired to plan future adventures and to celebrate the welcome the world is waiting to offer us. Thanks for joining us today for Travel with Rick Steves. Maybe you never even got their name, but there are people we encounter in our travels that we'll never forget for all the right reasons. Share some of your best travel memories with us. We'd love to hear them. We're at 877-333-7425 or write us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Tracy's calling in from Sutton's Bay in Michigan. Tracy, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. So you've been traveling, and uh, have you experienced some friendliness on the road, some kindness from strangers? We have. We had spent a really relaxing week in Tuscany driving around, visiting the hill towns, and we decided for some reason we were going to take the train from Florence, which we had not visited, back to Rome to fly out. And little did we know, we'd never experienced the airport in Florence and the chaos and the trains coming and going and people everywhere. And we realized when we got there that we had printed out confirmation of our train tickets to Rome, but not the actual tickets. And we tried to use the machines. The machines didn't work. We tried to get help. There was an endless line. And we finally got to the front of this line. And this very uh, crusty, uh, cranky Italian clerk was trying to help us. But she was not going to print the tickets no matter what. Mm. We went to a different clerk. We couldn't get any help. We came back and decided we needed to just calm down and appeal to her kindness. We explained what was going on. It was our first time, and boy, all of a sudden, she just cracked. She pointed to my husband and used her fingers, said, come over, and she pushed her keyboard at him and helped him print our train tickets. She did not want to, but she did. And I was almost in tears. We couldn't believe it because we thought we would be stuck for sure. And we decided we would do something kind for her in return. Here, you know, she's just doing her job with all these busy people coming and going, demanding things. So we went to one of the little shops at the train station and bought the biggest box of chocolates we could find. We brought them back to her and she melted. (laughs) She just couldn't believe it. I mean, you think about so many people in the service industry, people complain and complain. And here she had somebody who appreciated what she did. She came around the counter, she gave us both hugs, and it was one of a hundred times that we reminded ourselves we need to get better with our language skills. Right. Because we couldn't communicate, but boy, it just made our day. And you could tell hers as well. So it was just delightful. Somebody just told me, if you meet three jerks a day, you're a jerk. Uh, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of like we really project <laughs> yeah. what we get. And uh, 
You're a beautiful example of, of empathy. You know, I'm over there for months at a time, and I'm in there in peak season when it's hot and crowded, and, and these clerks, you know, they don't have the greatest job. They didn't get a great education. They're stuck there. It's hot. There's no air con. They're dealing with people that, that seem klutzy because they don't speak the language. They're screwing up. I mean, you screwed up by not printing out the right thing, and uh, they've got a long line, and they've been doing it for eight hours a day for the last 10 years. And to have just some empathy instead of uh, being the squeaky uh, wheel that gets the grease uh, and then calming down and just kind of just asking politely and being patient and then recognizing that and buying her a box of chocolates, that is, that is so beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, and empathy is something I personally in this time feel so strongly about right empathy. now. Empathy, yeah, we need more of that. And on our, we need it at home and we can exercise it in our travels and just a little secret, a little practical tip. Things go better for people who have empathy. You know, the, 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 the noisy, demanding ones, they don't have a better trip. You know, they can insist on certain things. But when you have empathy and you give a little more than you get and you're flexible, your trip is better for it. It is. Absolutely. Right. That's a good lesson, Tracy. Thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. We're checking in with you, our listeners, at 877-333-7425 about your favorite travel memories when a simple encounter, big or small, just made your day. You can also write us by email. The address is radio at ricksteves.com. Jacob's calling in from Boston. Hey, Jacob, have you found some kindness on the road? I have, actually. Uh, hi, Rick. Um, I was in Cuba last March, and I was staying in Vinales, uh, the city in the west coast of Cuba, with my girlfriend, and we were staying in one of those casas uh, particulares where they, uh, the residents of communities in Cuba can rent out certain uh, areas of their house for tourists to stay in. Yeah. I rented out a room with my girlfriend, and I woke up one morning uh, before my girlfriend, and I uh, was uh, able to have a cup of coffee with the guy who owned the casa in the morning right as the sun was rising. They had, they had like two chairs on the roof. We grabbed our Cuban coffees, went to the roof, and... We just watched the city come alive. We saw the horse-drawn carriages uh, trotting through the street in this little tiny Cuban village that I don't think a lot of tourists get to. Um, it is on the tourist circuit, but, I mean, a lot of tourists go to Havana, Trinidad, but I think those who go to Vinales can try to get a bit more of that local uh, charm. Mm. You know, I was just in Vinales, and I went to Trinidad and Havana, and I, I think you're right. Most people go to Havana and, and Trinidad, but if you want the small-town version, and it is, if I remember correctly, just surrounded by the wonders of Cuban nature, you go on a horse ride and so on, and uh, staying in a Casa Particulare there, and you go up on the rooftop and you share a cup of coffee. I remember our family that we stayed in, they were, like, disarmingly friendly. It was just like, this is too good to be true, and... You know, they wanted to cook us dinner on their rooftop, and we had this amazing dinner, and, you know, we, we were happy to pay them instead of a restaurant because we knew it mattered for their family budget. And Cuba just really lends itself to connecting with people. If I think of the eight or ten days I was in Cuba, every day was filled with, with people experiences more than anything else. Oh, that, it was amazing. What, one of my favorite moments that morning as we were watching the sunrise, drinking these too strong, they were too strong, these <laughs> cups of coffee, <laughs> And he, he took me down to his backyard, and he, he like lifted a tarp and was showing me this old car that he was working on. It was like an old Cadillac that he got from his father, right. and he was restoring it. And he just uh, there was a bit of a language barrier. I, mean, I know a little bit of Spanish, but from what I could understand was that he was restoring it, and he was just like saying, you know, America has the best cars, and 
it was just a great little moment we had in the morning before we set off for um, our day. And it was something that I'll remember for the rest of my life. You know, those are the little things, aren't they? I mean, you couldn't, uh, your guidebook doesn't let you book that in advance. You couldn't pay a tour bus to take you there. That's just being open to meeting people and then when the opportunity presents itself, saying yes. Oh, yeah. That, that's the thing. Say yes, uh, not no. <laughs> yes and not no but. Yeah, that's good. And uh, when you're in a country that happens to be a developing country, a poor country, you're a blessing coming in because those people can't afford to go out and you bring the world to them and, and they're happy to show off what they've got and they're also eager to talk to you and learn about your perspective. It was great. And I, when I was in Havana too, I woke up early, uh, walked along the Malacon during sunrise. I asked a local fisherman who was fishing off the Malacon, uh, hey, is there anywhere to get a cup of coffee nearby? And then without hesitation, he just took me to uh, this little tiny hole in the wall where this lady was making coffee for all, all the other uh, you know, sleepies that were just waking up, you know, Cubans yeah. for for the day. He said, "Be quiet." She just she doesn't serve tourists, <laughs> so <laughs> I was just quiet. And she he got two cups of coffee and he gave it to me, and we just walked and drank our coffee and watched uh, Havana wake up. And I uh, I gave him you know some money. I was just like you know so thankful for that, and um, it was just a, a great interaction. How fun, Jacob! You could write a book called Travels with Jacob and Coffee. I think. Of course, yeah, that'd be be cool. All these opportunities to connect with people by uh, enjoying a cup of coffee early in the morning, on their rooftop, uh, on the waterfront. Sounds good. (laughs) Cuba's a great place, whether you speak Spanish or not, to go and meet people, and you'll certainly experience the kindness of strangers there. I felt safe in Cuba, too. Much as it's a poor country, I felt much safer there than a place like El Salvador or Honduras. I felt very safe, especially at night. Yeah, I was out, out in Havana. It was like, I mean, these are barrios that are really desperately poor. I mean, people are living in these. It almost looks like a stage set of a scary movie in these places where they're living. And I was out after midnight with with my kids, and it just felt welcoming. It just felt like with open arms and not an edge, not an angriness, not a not a awkwardness because I had so much and they had so little. little. It's just we're all in this together. Yeah, speaking of that, after it was like 12.30 in the morning, 1 o'clock in the morning, we were just getting back to our our little B&B, and my, my girlfriend realized she left her phone in the taxi, and she was just freaking, I was freaking out. We, we didn't know what to do, so I just ran back, like, about from, it was, we were staying in, like, West Havana. We, I, I ran about 30 minutes back to where we got the taxi, hoping that he was still there, and he was there holding the phone, <laughs> and ah. he, he said, I, I was waiting for you, and then he drove me back, and it was just an awesome experience, and oh. um, I feel like I wouldn't have gotten that in the States at all. I love that. That is the kindness of strangers. He was waiting for you. He was happy to see you, and then he drove you home. Yep. All right. Hey, Jacob, thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing. All right. Thank yeah. you. Happy, happy travels. Yep. Katie in Chicago emailed us, and she wrote, We unknowingly visited a remote area of Oman during the Eid al-Adha holiday one of the holiest days of the year in Islam. The night before the holiday, a local man struck up a conversation with us at dinner. We asked him if any shops would be open on the holiday, as we'd noticed that most restaurants and gas stations were already closed. He told us that literally everything would be closed for the holiday. My husband and I quietly discussed ordering extra food to bring back to our hotel and raiding the hotel mini-mart to cover our meals the next day. The man turned to us and said, Why don't you come to my home for dinner tomorrow night? He essentially invited two foreign strangers to the equivalent of the family Christmas dinner at his home. The next night, we attended the holiday dinner in this man's home with his large, extended family. We don't speak Arabic, and most of the people at that home didn't speak English. But friendly smiles and laughter transcended the language barrier. It was an unforgettable evening. 
What a great story from Katie in Chicago, dropping in on a Muslim holiday, and because everything was closed, ending up joining a family at their festive dinner. Great inspiration on how, when you're on the road, the kindness of strangers can sweep you away. And Rebecca's on the line from Haverford in Pennsylvania. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Nice to speak with you, Rebecca. So, um, kindness on the road, does that make any sense to you from your travel experience? It does. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I went to Japan. I got a leave of absence from my job in Manhattan and took a month to travel around Japan by myself. And um, do you want my story or did you want to ask me a bunch of more questions? No, I'd like, I'd like you make it, you know, give us a quick little rundown on the story and then uh, we'll explore it. But it, you're in your 20s, you're going to Japan all on your own. Yeah, I visited with some people in Tokyo that I knew, and then because it was so far away, I decided I should, you know, see a lot of the country. And so I just took the train around and, and, and did that. As you know, I'm sure the further you get away from Tokyo, this was in the 80s, the, the less English they speak. And so one evening at dusk, I got off the train in a small town in Kyushu, an island on the southern part of Japan, I was planning to find my youth hostel, but when I found the map in the train station, it was all in Japanese characters, so it was pretty hard for me to understand. So I'm standing there staring at it, trying to figure it out, and this little crumpled up old man comes up to me and somehow communicates to me, you know, asks me where I'm going, and um, he doesn't speak English, so I can't remember how we communicated, but somehow he offered to escort me to the youth hostel. And he did that, and we climbed up this really steep, long hill, and I got there. So that was wonderful. Cause you know, I don't know how I would have done it without, you know, Google Maps and um, Google Translate. It's so interesting to hear you tell this story because I think I, when I was in my 20s, I was on the island of Kyushu, and the maps were all in Japanese. And people would appear like angels sent from heaven to sort of rescue me. And I couldn't speak the language, could barely speak a word of the language, but somehow they could get a sense that, that I was confused and I was lost and they just really wanted to help me out. So you made a friend with, this man interrupted his day and, and took care of you. He did that. And then the, the end of the story is that the next day I did whatever I had gone there to do, you know, hot sand baths and temples or whatever it was, and the next day when I got back to the youth hostel, he was waiting there for me, and huh. he asked me when I was leaving, and I told him, oh, I'm leaving really early the next morning, and um, he said, well, I'll come back up and meet you and escort you down to the train station, and the Manhattanite in me at the time thought, wait, now this is a little bit too nice, and so I uh, turned him down. I mean, I said, thank you so much, but you know, no, I'm really fine. And I went on to, of course, kind of regret that because I realized this guy was really just being kind. And I don't know if they don't see foreigners that often, or, like you said, they are sort of aware of foreigners needing help, and they're there to help us. Well, you know, that's one of the big quandaries of travel. When you're independent and you want to meet people, you don't want to be naive, and you have to err on the side of safety, you know. So I, I wouldn't Monday morning quarterback that too much because we do have to be careful about people who are giving us... When people are unreasonably friendly. Sometimes that's a danger sign, but I know what you're talking about. I've done the same thing where you just, you think, ah, oh, this is too good to be true, and you turn it down, and it was probably just a beautiful person that really wanted to help you. Exactly. 
exactly. Impossible to know. Impossible to know. All right. Well, hey, that's good food for thought, and uh, it gave you a memory for the rest of your life. That's right. All right. Hey, happy travels, Rebecca. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. The kindness we can find all around us gets amplified when we're traveling into another culture. But as our listeners are reminding us right now on Travel with Rick Steves, it's most likely when you're open to it. Karen's calling in from Harupa Valley in California. Karen, thanks for your call. Have you um, enjoyed any kindness on the road? I have experienced kindness from the most unusual place and person I would not have expected. I went to Sweden to see where my grandparents came from, and I planned it out of my Rick Steve Scandinavia 1996 handbook. But unfortunately, you didn't tell me about what to do when the car needed gasoline. So here I had rented a car in Stockholm. I was driving to Dalarna to spend midsummer in the most traditional of provinces. I needed gas. I was in the middle of a forest, pulled into a gas station. Nobody was there except for one kid filling up his tank, and, and everything about him screamed, I'm scary, stay away from me, had tattoos and piercings. And I thought, well, I don't know, do you pump first, do you pay first, do you wait for the attendant? So I went up to the fellow and I said, excuse me, do you speak English? And he said, yes. And I said, how do you work these gas pumps? Because they look like the transformer toys that kids have that change from robots into into, uh, cars or whatever. And he could have ignored me. He could have told me to go away in any language. He could have just gotten in his car and driven off. Mm -hmm. But instead, he smiled and said, just a moment, I will do it for you. And I think of all the people I've traveled around the world by myself, and of all the people I've met, he is the most memorable. And I wish there was some way I could say, "You, you truly reinforce that books don't look like their covers. Well, that is a huge bit of travel wisdom there. Books don't always, what was it, look like their covers or read like their covers, yeah. And especially when we travel, we meet people from different generations and different cultures and different religions and so on. And sometimes we can be so, I think, innocently or unknowingly judgmental just because it's different. And when we venture out and, and talk to these people or accept their kindness or show our vulnerability and what we need, we can be blown away and we can then have our perspective broadened and, and we can be less afraid. Well, my, my son says, Mother, there are people you should be afraid of, but I feel in transmitting, oh, sweetheart, I know you're really, I know you're a nice person inside, that yeah. they'll, they'll get it. That's nice. Karen, thanks so much for sharing that story. My pleasure, Rick. Happy travels. Thank you. We all need more kindness in this world. We all need more kindness in this world. You may look high and low, but there's no place else to go. We all need more kindness in this world. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan Woolner, and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're traveling, you can find out when stations in other cities air travel with Rick Steves. Look for the link that says Find a Local Station. It's on our radio page at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. 
At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.